Welcome to the Engineering Career Conversations. I'm Krista Downey, Director of the Engineering Career Center at Cornell University. And I'm Tracy Nathans-Kelly, Director of the Engineering Communications Program. We are excited to bring you this forum where we will host lively conversations that we hope will inspire you. Today, Esther Park will be joining us. Esther is a chemical engineering graduate and here to speak with us about her career as a pharmacist. Welcome, Esther. So glad to be here. Uh, So glad to have you. First, can you tell us a bit about your path to becoming a pharmacist? Yes, it was fairly convoluted, but now I look back, it ended up being a straight path. So I had graduated with a chemical engineering degree. I had done what I thought was an amazing co-op program at Procter & Gamble. After the seven months of work experience, I pretty much knew I wanted to do consumer products. And I would say the Cornell Career Center really set me up for success with the career fairs and meeting all of the recruiters. And I had a couple job offers in consumer products before I graduated. I ended up going with the Clorox company out in the Bay Area, beautiful California. And I worked there working on pine sol, bleach, Clorox disinfecting wipes. And I did that about uh, two years in when we started having an economic downturn in 2008. And some of the uh, company goals ended up changing from innovation to slightly more cost savings. And it was a little less exciting. And I also saw the impact that it had on some of my older coworkers. So I told my boss at that point, hey, I think I might want to do something different, but I'd like to keep working here while I figure out what that is. So we came up with a plan. It was super accommodating. And I worked uh, about 75%. And I ended up taking some classes because I knew I wanted to go into some type of healthcare field. So I ended up working at Clorox for three years. I also ended up shadowing at um, various areas that might make more sense for a chemi, such as biotech. Uh, Genentech is out there. There are some large biotech companies out in the Bay Area. And one of the things that interested me was clinical trials. And what I heard was if you go in as a chemi, you start at one level. But if you happen to have a pharmacy degree, you can start at another level. Have you ever thought of that? So I said, no. My mom had wanted me to be a pharmacist actually in high school. And I said, that was the most boring job ever. No, thank you. And I decided to be an engineer. Well, moms do know best. So I ended up looking into pharmacy. And one of my friends, he was a neonatologist at Stanford Children's. And that's the um, type of doctor who takes care of the really tiny babies. And so he set me up with a shadowing opportunity with one of his pharmacist colleagues. I followed her for four hours. And I did not even realize a pharmacist could work at a pediatric institution care for the most vulnerable patients and see miracles happen every day. Just that four hours shadowing, multiple miracles, families, just walking out the door happy. I wanted to be part of that. So I did my 75% work at Clorox. 25% of the time I took just a handful of classes that a chemi program did not have for pharmacy school. Um, Strange things like communications and then anatomy and psych and physiology, and those are the only four classes that I needed. I ended up going to UCSF, which I will say Cornell more than prepared me for. It, at the time, was the number one ranked pharmacy school in the country. The PCHEM class that I took there was so much easier than Professor Duncan's PCHEM class. The collaboration and teamwork that we did in our group projects more than prepared me for anything that I needed to do there, and I would say it was a great four years, got my doctorate, 
started working at a pediatric institution and then have worked my way to my current job as the uh, regulatory compliance safety quality pharmacist. Excellent. Thank you. I'm really interested in that job title. What does that job title mean? I've been around medical stuff yeah. a lot, but I don't know what that is. Yep. So there's a lot of stuff in the background that happens in a hospital that front facing a patient and family should never have to see, right? And unfortunately, there are things that might be around errors, either decreasing an error that occurs in a hospital, or if an error does occur, doing what we call a root cause analysis to figure out why did it occur? You ask why at least seven times. What process? What led to that process breaking down? Did we not have standard work? Is it training? Is it an unexpected change? Is it an outside environmental factor? Is it even maybe something is going on at home and the person was distracted and there was a miss in a safety step that needed to occur? And so we do that. I also talk with patients and families when an error does reach a patient to be able to tell them why it happened and what we're doing to prevent it from ever happening again. There's a lot of collaboration. I'm a little bit of a um, front-facing person from my department whenever we have big projects. So if we were to change like the infusion pumps that are used to give IVs to our patients, or if we change the type of supplies or needles that we use, if there is a medication shortage, and by if, I mean when there's a medication shortage, how does it impact a patient? How might a doctor need to change their orders? How might a nurse need to change the way they administer the medication? How might the pharmacist need to change the way we order and prepare that medication? So all of that is encompassed in my job, plus regulations. Pharmacy is one of the most heavily regulated areas in the hospital, rightly so, because oftentimes in the news, you don't see all the good stuff that happens in the background, but you do hear of the risks that get out and reach patients. It could be a contaminated IV that leads to harm, drug shortages that we are unable to provide care for patients. And so with all of that, ensuring that our um, we have five licensed pharmacies, that they're all compliant with state and federal regulations, as well as kind of exceeding those regulations with our own internal policies and procedures. And then what I also have is an amazing group of seven pharmacists that report up through me, and they each have uh, area they're accountable for. So one is responsible for shortages, one is responsible for our quality program, one is responsible for our formulary. Um, it's called PNT or Pharmacy and Therapeutics. Every hospital has a Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee. Even insurance companies have it, uh, any medical group. And what that does is it's a group of interdisciplinary leaders who reviews evidence and decides based off of cost, safety, quality, is this the right medication for us to have in our hospital? And then that leads to appropriate ordering support in our electronic health record. It leads to the pharmacy um, stocking and preparing at a standard way, guidance for the nurse on how to safely administer, and then policies and procedures to support that work. So not what I thought I'd be doing at all, but super interesting. Um, I also have two pharmacists who work on uh, just build validation. Anytime something new comes into the organization that is med-related, you have thousands of people who might be interacting with that medication. And how do you ensure it is a consistent, safe process? So by the end of that line, when that medication is being given to a patient, we know it is right, the right dose, the right time for the right patient. And 
all of that work needs to be validated, that it is functioning as intended. So we have two pharmacists who work on that. Um, I also have some support with reports. We're looking at reports all the time and some admin support. And then a pharmacist who focuses on larger projects. Esther, I am so impressed with just with your energy and the devotion to the process and how much you're managing in this really complex situation. You may know that I'm in the engineering communications program. And so everything that you're saying to me about communicating to all the parties involved and your teams just resonates so much with what we're trying to impart here at Cornell about communication and teams and your career trajectory. Can you talk a little bit more, just maybe for my benefit, <laughs> about the communication uh, skills that you've put into play? Yes. Okay. I actually love talking about this because I say this, I think, too much, but it's true. It doesn't matter how much you do or how much you know. If you cannot communicate it effectively, the work does not even matter. In the hospital setting, it is so crucial. Communication couple examples. Pharmacists are on rounds, which we call, um, and that's when a pharmacist is working with the medical team to speak with the family and decide what is your care plan for today. Every group in the hospital has a expertise. And for the pharmacist, it's around medication. If you have a um, either a forceful manner or an unclear manner in which you make a recommendation around a medication change to the provider, they may refuse it or think it is a nice suggestion, but I don't need to do that. It is how you package and phrase that recommendation clearly and simply that you can then influence change, which is only going to benefit the patient, decrease the risk of harm. So key. We also have risks around handoff. When you're going off of your shift, someone else is coming on or there's a complicated patient you need to talk about. If you are unable to clearly enunciate and simplify what is a huge problem. The people who need to make the decisions do not have the information to make the right decision. It is so important. And then even within my team, so we have a standard way of communicating called an SBAR, situation, background, assessment, and recommendation. Everything we send out is an SBAR format. Even though it's a clear format, some people's SBARs are paragraphs. My SBARs, and what I strive to have my team do to then influence the rest of the department to communicate this way is the simplest subject. That is the one thing you read, you know, does it apply to me or not? The background is helpful information, but really should not be more than a handful of bullets. Assessment, what is the one-liner of what you need people to understand about the situation? And then the recommendation, really clearly, what do you need to do about this today for your specific role? And if we do not communicate like this in a clear manner, it's almost a waste all of the work we did on the back end to try to reach uh, either consensus or an improvement to care. There was a class that Professor Clancy had us take, I think it was our junior year, and around memo writing. And when she, the first year of class, she had told us, you know, you're not going to be excited about this class. You'll think it doesn't apply, but... I'm going to tell you, once you get out into the workplace, it's going to be one of the classes that you're going to be grateful for. Boy, was she right. I, to this day, have leaders from the hospital send me things so that I rip it apart and bring it down to the most succinct, important information. It's not great in that 
people should be able to communicate clearly. And I work a lot of hours and I don't need to be editing someone else's information. At the same time, they are very clear on the need for clear communication, the benefits that come from clear communication and see the value of, I guess, that little piece of editing that I provide. And it ultimately supports the rest of our organization to enhance care and enhance our services. So communication is so key. And for anyone in any role, even if you think you are just going to have to be head down working on a project, it is still very important to practice and build the skills around communication. So important. Thank you for indulging me there a little bit, (laughs) but I'm glad to hear, right, that even the simplest assignment, like a memo assignment, will absolutely carry through in these unexpected ways. So thank you for those really wonderful on-the-job examples that help, you know, our students and our listeners here think about the very concrete ways that classes play out in the workplace. Absolutely. I'm thinking about these communication skills. I'm also thinking about all these optimization skills, project, product management skills that I've seen chemical engineering students use over the years in co-ops and internships and their first jobs where they are working in consumer products like you did. And we hear a lot from students these days that they're trying to figure out where they might fit, where they might contribute, how they might contribute to solving some of the most challenging problems that we face in the world around climate solutions and healthcare and things like that. And as I hear you talk, I'm making a lot of connections in my mind. I'm curious to hear from your perspective, what would you say to these students who are young chemical engineering students or perhaps in related fields who are trying to figure out how they can contribute? They can absolutely contribute. Okay. Really, really tiny example. IV fluids. You wouldn't think of an IV fluid any given day of the year, right? You don't think about it. Even when you go to a hospital, you're not thinking about IV fluids. And by IV fluids, I mean it's a sterile bag of water that contains sugar or a sterile bag of water that contains salt or a sterile bag of water that contains a mixture with other electrolytes. If that bag is hypotonic, it does not have enough sugar or electrolytes in there. When you infuse it into your body, your body's going to freak out because now you're infusing water, your cells are going to, you know, burst. It can lead to significant harm. Making sure that that is created in the right chemical makeup, that's part of the QA process that engineers do to ensure that that bag is tested for sterility, for chemical stability, for packaging stability, for temperature stability, that all happens with that bag. And then that bag gets to the hospital and it needs to work within the hospital system. We had recently, for environmental reasons, switched um, some of our IV bag products from the soft PVC plastic to a non-plasticizer based, um, it's more like a crinkly plastic, DHP free. And with that change, these different plastic bags that contain the same exact fluid When they go through some of our delivery systems, which includes a pneumatic tube system, where you tube something here, there's air pressure in a vacuum and it pushes it to the right unit in the hospital, those bags were bursting. And yes, it was a good change for environmental reasons, but potentially the testing done within the factory setting to ensure 
it was not just stable in transport, but stable in normal use in the hospital setting, might have missed the mark. Trying to figure out what was wrong in that situation, multidisciplinary, right? It includes your engineers with the pneumatic tube system within the hospital. Is the pressure too great? Is there enough slowing down before it hits the end station? Even the way that on the pharmacy side, we put the bag into the tube station so that the softest side was on the bottom when we sent it out from the pharmacy so that the harder side landed on the nursing unit when they received it. Like all of these things were part of our engineering curriculum, right? You're taught to think what's the issue. You're taught to think big picture. People are saying this is the problem. But one of the things we learn is that's what they think the problem is. Can you rephrase the question to see what the issue is and then address that? Comes in handy every single day. I love it. Thank you. We wanted to also ask you about what people, organizations, or other bodies are important collaborators uh, towards thinking about these sustainable moves or the way that you are working towards these larger grand goals, you know, of making the world a better place. So where do you go to for collaboration or even inspiration? I think my role in particular, it is a fun role because I get to interact with everyone in the organization. So for instance, some of our closest partners are providers, like our doctors and our nurse practitioners, and then our nurses. And we always need to collaborate together to make sure the entire, what we call medication use process is safe. But we also work very closely with respiratory therapists who are giving our respiratory, um, like breathing therapies. We also work very closely with our sourcing partners. They're the ones who are uh, bringing in the contracts and doing a value analysis to see what is the most ideal because you're pairing what is the highest quality safe item to bring in versus the cost versus the impact to workflow. So no single discipline makes the choice. It is a collaborative effort. Work very closely with hospital leaders, often around either communication or a big practice change. We also have a lot of offsites. And so there are regional leaders that we're working with very closely. And that's just within our immediate organization. Outside of that space, well, I work very closely with, uh, there's a collaboration of compliance leaders within the Seattle area. And I work with them very closely around issues that are coming to us from you know, various people within the organization. Are they experiencing it too? Why? And it's, they're some of my favorite calls because they're just really compassionate, kind, and smart leaders who both are balancing what is the right thing to do for the patient and the org and the right thing to do from a compliance perspective, because they don't always match. And then we also have statewide partnerships with either other hospital leaders or other pediatric leaders. And then we have even federal and US-wide partners around quality, safety, and compliance. So all of that does come together uh, on any given day to have a successful kind of, in my mind, I just call them mini projects. So one of the things that was in the news a few months ago, RSV, right? You never even heard about RSV before. And then RSV was all over the news, which I was grateful for because every year outside of the pandemic years, starting in June, July, August, we would start tracking RSV rates in Australia and Alaska 
and Florida to see when is it rising so that I can start partnering with our state's Medicaid, Medicare, other regional sites, other areas that care for pediatric populations, get drug in the door, and educate our providers to start identifying patients who are at high risk of hospitalization or um, morbidity, mortality, like a significant risk to their body if they contract RSV, usually patients less than two years of age who are immunosuppressed or have a heart or lung condition. And for those patients, we give them a, um, people think of it as a vaccine, but it's like a monoclonal antibody that prevents the virus from replicating. It's very expensive. You have to get it once every month for five months. And it's this huge collaboration that goes behind the scenes to protect patients, prevent death, prevent hospitalizations. And finally, the world was hearing about it. And that could then provide support across the state level, federal level, and so on. So there is actually a lot of research going on in that area. And so hopefully by this next fall, if not the following year, we'll have something available for our pediatric patients. There are new vaccines that are coming out for adults, older adults and pregnant patients, which will be great. I went off on a tangent, but it's very exciting. It is very exciting. <laughs> this is fascinating. It's so exciting. Yeah. Yes. Yep. And that work, so that work to build those vaccines or to build those monoclonal antibodies, chemical engineers, chemical engineers in plants who are creating and producing these medications. You know, we have friends, chemical engineers, biomedical engineers, materials engineers, systems engineers at every single biotech company, pharmaceutical manufacturer to streamline these processes and we have engineers who are working in these companies and they're so far away from maybe the patient care aspect of it. But I can tell you that the work you're doing in these biotech companies, these pharmaceutical manufacturers are reaching our patients and providing really good care. The other part of it though, I would say is we do need to have a reasonably priced, easy to navigate healthcare system because that does unnecessarily cause risk and harm. Yeah, there are so many challenges and things that need solutions in the system. Mm -hmm. And yet it's, you know, good to hear the behind the scenes of all the positive things that are happening that are making a difference. And, you know, I'm grateful that there are people like you who are working behind the scenes to keep it all together and make sure that things run smoothly and safely. So along those lines, what was the most significant challenge you faced in your work and how did you overcome it? I can think of maybe one that has somewhat passed and one that is ongoing. I'll try to keep it short. Okay. (laughs) The one that has somewhat passed is we switched our electronic health record a few years ago. And when you do that, it's a total change in workflow for everyone as well as you need to rebuild all of the medications. And it's almost like re, I I don't even know, what would the engineering equivalent be? It's like you need to either rebuild an entire plant or you need to rebuild an entire um, operating system because they don't even communicate to each other. It's all manual, manual upload. And even the act of getting our old orders into the new system was manual, which is crazy. So with that, There were, I think, decisions made upstream to either expedite the project or people just didn't understand the impact. And when we went live, there were so many 
um, events or things that our frontline staff saw that caused just a lot of unnecessary stress because you go into work and you, especially in a pediatric hospital, there are no egos. When you see a sick kid, you know, that is not right. And everyone is on the same page of, we need to fix this and make it better. But then to have an electronic health system that wasn't acting the way you thought it was supposed to act, or might've even been providing you information that wasn't quite right. You don't know what you don't know and you don't know what else is wrong or what's happening behind the scenes. So with that, it was so many SBARs and clear communication, escalations up our chain of command and bringing in the right people to understand, yes, the transition might've occurred and on paper, it looks great. These are the real life issues that people are seeing that I'm not satisfied with just fixing. I want to know why it's happening and where else it can happen so that we can not just patch it up, but fix it from the ground up. And that, luckily, our organization so cares about safety and we got the resources, but it was a big work in progress. So it's been a few years. The system is so much better today than it was at Go Live. Our staff use it and trust it way more than they did at Go Live. And through that, we've created all of these partners to help identify issues or come up with great suggestions for improvement because there will always be a way to improve care. There will always be something we can do to make it better. And you want to have the environment to foster those ideas because at the end, it'll help a sick child. And then the second one that's ongoing, I, I touched on it a little bit. It's about drug shortages. So that's also been getting some, you know, FaceTime with the news, which is great. Uh, you've probably heard about acetaminophen or Tylenol, ibuprofen um, or Advil called, or some of the ADHD meds like Adderall that there have been recent shortages. That is just the tip of the iceberg. We experienced just a few years ago, it used to be around 50 shortages a year that impacted our patients. Now it's hundreds of shortages a year that impact our patients. And let's say you go to a Starbucks and they don't have coffee beans. Really weird. When you go to a hospital, you expect them to have medications. And the fact that we are unable to provide all the medications to our patients seamlessly is a concern, huge concern, has been discussed. The medical um, medical groups, pharmacy groups have been escalating up to the federal level so hard because manufacturers can just decide to go bankrupt and close or say, this medication is too hard to make. I'm going to make more money off of this one. I'm going to stop that line and move my production to something else. A lot of places might be outsourcing to other countries for which the FDA does not have the um, personnel or even jurisdiction to necessarily go out to all of these countries and inspect them. So when an issue is found and we can't bring that medication in anymore, what do we do? And this happens not just with our Tylenol and Advil and Adderall, but with chemotherapy, with IV antibiotics, with our IV um, pain control meds. About two and a half, three years ago, there was such a shortage of pain control medications. There were hospitals across the country who met uh, surgery leaders and pharmacy leaders and hospital leaders were meeting every single day to say, this is how much medication we have. 
These are the surgeries we have planned. These are the ones that we need to cancel because we cannot provide pain control after their surgery. That is how bad it has been. And that is something that we see almost every day. So my pharmacist who's dedicated to shortages, you know, I meet with her on the daily and her, I mean, she's fantastic. There are three strategies that we do every day to make this work. And it is a constant struggle because you never know what you're going to find. One of them, pharmacy can absorb it. We can change the way we do things. We can change what we buy. We can change the system to keep providing it. So it's maybe more work and kind of weird for us, but the doctor won't see it. The nurse won't see it. The patient won't see it. The second one is we need to change what we're doing. Here's an alternate agent and the doctor needs to order something different or the nurse needs to give it a different way, send out that communication, make sure it's fully built out in the system and that change happens. The third way is that medication is not made by anyone else and there is no alternative. What are we going to do? Those are the really hard ones that recently um, have become more frequent. And so huge, huge opportunities there. So I guess this is a call out to all of the smart student engineers. If there is a way for you to go into a career to facilitate healthcare quality through drug shortages, through manufacturing, through, you know, creation of medications that don't exist for diseases that our patients have, like, please do it, go into it. There's a huge need and there are jobs. Please do it. I'm holding my breath, (laughs) knowing all of these things, right? Um, uh, from the medical records on, I used to send a lot of communication interns when I was at another university. We had a medical records facility nearby, electronic, right? They were building the software. So I would send a lot of students out there and they're like, oh boy, this is complicated stuff. And But both of your examples were just wonderful. So we just had you in the headspace of what is the most complicated thing happening at your workplace right now, right? Mm-hmm. Now we're going to ask you to look backwards a little bit. So when you're around a sophomore, when you're thinking about declaring which major, where are you going to spend your time? What do you wish you knew at that point to help you make that decision? I took the intro to chemistry class my first year and loved it. I kind of thought that I would like chemistry. I didn't know what it was at all, but I liked chemistry. I liked math and I thought maybe that was it. So I think taking an intro course in the fields that you might be interested in reaching out and shadowing people, you know, connecting through the career center, maybe Krista or team can hook you up with someone who might be in that area already to talk you through what a day looks like or how they got there. Like all of those I would definitely do. But in my first year, when I took that intro class, one of my TAs, um, Buffy, you're stressed out, you're kind of a, an adult, but still a kid at the same time. And you don't know, and this seems like such a big decision. She's like, 80% of decisions are good decisions. And if they're not, you can learn from them. So accurate. There is truly only learning, right? If everything worked out the way you thought it would work out, you don't even know the possibilities that you miss. So just try and have a good attitude and be flexible. You're going to end up where you're supposed to end up. You know, if I listened to my mom, maybe I would be a pharmacist (laughs) and I would have no idea that I really like pharmacy. 
Well, and you mentioned the shadowing, that four-hour experience completely changed everything for you. And I, I, I think that we often forget about shadowing as a real you know, magnifying glass on a situation. Is this the right fit? And you can try it on just for a day. The other thing we wanted to ask uh, is where do you go now to look for information or stay current in what you're doing? There are a lot of organizations that, depending on the professional field that you go into, probably can support you. So for instance, there's a, a American, there's a society called American System for Healthcare Pharmacists, hospital pharmacists across the U.S. They have great resources. Um, I review that information regularly. There are manuals and um, newsletters that come out from the FDA, the DEA, and then CMS. So that's the Food and Drug Administration, the Drug Enforcement Agency, and then the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services that have very medication-specific information that I'm interested in, that I am a part of. We have our statewide pharmacy association, so the Washington State Pharmacy Association that I'm part of. So there are various professional organizations that have broader reaches and resources, always newer resources or connections that can help you know what's going on in your area because your individual ability to do that is probably going to be limited. The other thing is keeping connections open. So whether it's with your colleagues or it's your friends from school or connections you make through um, social media or even this career center, I think reaching out to them because that compliance collaborative that I have with the other compliance leaders in the Seattle area is so important for me to bounce ideas off of and learn what what they do and how they do it and why. The other thing is, um, I think in this day and age, really being careful about your sources of information and making sure that you use the critical thinking skills that you receive from school and practice them in the real world. So for example, um, I am co-chair for the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee, which looks at all of the medications that we carry in our hospital. Every single time we have a new medication requested to be added, We do a full literature search, primary literature, as strong of a research background as possible to see what is the evidence for this medication safety and efficacy, plus in our pediatric population, which is often missing. And then where else can we get that information, whether it's even in a case report or a retrospective review, which is maybe not as strong, so that we can have a really clear case to add or not to add and strong rationale for that. I think those critical thinking skills, when there's a lot of information out there from some reputable and some not as reputable sources, is going to be important to make sure that the information you have to make choices is something you can feel good about a few years down the line. I Anytime somebody says, use critical thinking, I'm happy. We're good now. <laughs> We're good now, Esther. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Oh my gosh. So you are in a field, in an industry, and in a job with a lot of responsibility. People's lives, young people's lives truly are at stake here. And again, I need to say that I'm grateful that there are people like you doing this work. And with that, what do you do to step away, to relax, to have fun, to re-energize? I have a plan to work out. (laughs) It went, it went down the drain during the pandemic. So I do think being outside, 
That is so good for my mental health. There's a place called Squim. It's spelled S-E-Q-U-I-M. It's the uh, northwest side of the state of Washington, right near Olympic National Park. So it's beautiful, very green. And that's my happy place. Some of my friends have just retired there. Walks outside in the green, enjoying friends, family time. I think also being able to, um, in that way, step back. And uh, I, I just heard on NPR, like the sense of wonder. They've been doing studies on that and what it actually does to you physiologically so that it pauses you, decreases your heart rate, and allows you to step away from what might be swirling in your brain and walks outside or doing something different. Or the example they had in their um, article was around like raising chickens. Not that people are supposed to raise chickens just for the sense of wonder, but during that example, they found that um, I guess chickens make a special sound when one of their um, one of the other hens is about to lay an egg, and it's a very specific squawk. And this family heard the sound and had no idea what it was because it's so different from all the other sounds their chickens were making. And they finally put together that's happening every single time one of the hens lays an egg, and that sense of wonder was an example of you don't expect it but you're put in a situation and you see something new and it gives you a little bit of de-stress. It gives you that release from all the things that might be swirling in your brain or your heart. So I think that's important. Um, I just started doing these mindfulness exercises with my team because I love my team, but they also see a lot of the problems to fix and they I want to make sure that their minds and hearts are cared for so that they can better care for everyone else. And so we started doing these mindfulness exercises and I've, I've brought in someone who does like international mindfulness things. So even something so simple as like tracing your hands with a finger and just really feeling each touch or there's something called Qigong that he led us through where you're like bouncing on your toes to change the energy flow. And it improves even like the blood flow to your fingers and toes and gives you a chance to stretch and get out of your chair, which is important for engineers. I think all, all of those things also just love a good meal. My dog, <laughs> such a de-stressor. All of that sounds lovely. Now I want to go do all of those things. <laughs> but if you weren't doing this work right now, what would you be doing? Or what did you, an alternate question is, what would you, or were you imagining you'd do when you were a kid? Yeah, I think I wanted to be a zoologist. And okay, so a few years ago, went out to the Galapagos. You just like live on a boat and you go from island to island and you swim with everything in the ocean and you do these amazing hikes. And each one is led by a naturalist who graduated from the Darwin Institute. Mm. They need to be an Ecuadorian citizen, which is great because back in the day, I guess all of the scientists were Caucasian males who were leading people through either the Ecuadorian forest or through the Galapagos Islands. And one of the locals said, can I go through this program? I want to help preserve and support the ecosystem of my country. And so now you need to be Ecuadorian, the way our guide was explaining it, to go through that institute, other than these like PhD scientists. And 
he led us, he could hold his breath for like 10 minutes underwater. He, slight exaggeration, he led us through swimming with hammerhead sharks and dolphins and blue whale and um, sea lions and cormorants. And there was one point where we saw cacti on the shore. We were swimming with a penguin and there were pelicans on the island or no, flamingos on the island. It was like the weirdest combo of animals in a very small area. And I would just love to have his job. That would be really cool. I, I have to agree. That is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I want to go on that tour. <laughs> yeah. So it was cool. amazing. We're all going to sign up now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you the details. Excellent. Well, this has been wonderful. I have learned so much. I think we all have. Thank you so much, Esther, for taking the time. You have a lot of important work to do, so we don't want to keep you longer, but this has been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. It's so fun. It's such a fun idea. Oh, I would just say plug out to the Career Center. I did my work study there. It was so great. It's an untapped resource if you haven't had them review your resume or just talk with the people there. So helpful. So please use it. That's also the thing. One of the things you learn in pharmacy school, you may not know everything, but you need to know your resources. So you can find that information quickly. You are paying, I'm guessing, a lot of money or receiving some well-earned scholarships and grants to go to the school. Use your resources. Try that ice cream, fly a kite outside, go to the career center. Excellent. We can't possibly beat that as an ex exit. So thank you. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you are enjoying these conversations, please follow, rate, and review on your favorite platform. Join us for the next episode where we will be celebrating excellence and innovation among engineers whose impact contributes to a healthier, more equitable, and more sustainable world. <laughs>